HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Cutting the Curd has been brought to you by Academy Opus Cassius. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training in the heart of France. For more information, visit academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd. I am excited today to have in the studio Heather Paxson, author of The Life of Cheese, Crafting Food and Value in America, which is a unique investigation of the artisanal cheese industry through the lens of anthropological research. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Great to meet you. Anyway, my first question is, how did you decide to study the cheese world in this way? Well, it started as a consumer. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> and with a curiosity. So um, around 2000, I was living here in New York, actually, and um, enjoying all the cheeses available at uh, the cheese, great cheese shops here in the green market. Mm-hmm. And I don't eat meat and cheese is a big part of my diet. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I... I, I in the summer especially, we'll make a meal out of cheese. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize and to, to notice more and more European-style cheeses, cheeses um, made to be savored on their own mm-hmm. um, with maybe a glass of wine and a salad rather than thrown into a casserole or put into a sandwich. Um, but they were made domestically, and, mm-hmm. and they didn't exist when I was a kid. You know, cheeses that literally did not exist mm-hmm. 10 years earlier. So it started with a curiosity who was making them? How did they learn how to do it? And what kind of life did they have? So it, it became, it started with a curiosity about cheese and mm-hmm. became a curiosity about the place of artisanship in our industrial society and economy. 
Okay. Now, were you, you were already an anthropologist. I was. So that was how come you looked at things that way. Yes, that's, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is I was underemployed as an adjunct. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I never had the money to go back to Greece to do research, where, which is where I did my dissertation research. So I was also looking for a, a new research project that I could do cheaply where I lived. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So it was a love of food. Yes. And needing a new research topic uh-huh. in, in combination. How does this type of research fit into anthropology research today? Well, I think food has been studied by anthropologists for as long as there have been anthropologists. Um, in thinking about people's everyday lives, mm-hmm. um, in thinking about how their economic resources and their family um, resources intersect, food is a place that brings a lot of domains of social life together. Mm-hmm. So food is featured in early eth- in ethnographies from the very early um, days, but it wasn't really a focus, something that you could really legitimately build a career on, mm-hmm. I think until very recently, and, and that has happened in parallel with the the place of food in our public discourse, our public mm-hmm. consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are realizing that um, people are realizing that things have happened to our food system without us really being fully aware of it. Right, and they don't want to take it for granted anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, just as it's something that um, people in in the United States and North America and Europe and elsewhere are really thinking critically about um, that that's filtering through in, in the academy. Um, anthropologists take their cues from what people are concerned are about. about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So was is the Department of Food Studies an offshoot of anthropology? Well, or I, can it be? You know, that's a good question. I think some of the earliest scholarship on food and, and cuisine and everyday life did come from anthropologists. Mm-hmm. But food studies itself is very interdisciplinary. There's nutritionists. Mm -hmm. Of course, the study of nutrition often came from physical anthropologists who are Mm -hmm. measuring people's caloric intake and how they got their food and can you survive on nothing but mandango nuts in the (laughs) sub-Saharan. So um, uh, I think anthropology has been central. Okay. How long did it take to research the (laughs) book? Because their dates sprinkled in the book that seemed like you were doing this for a long time? I really started in 2004. Okay. Um, And by that I mean I started talking directly to cheesemongers and to cheesemakers. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts by then, and Mm -hmm. I talked to Isan Girdle, who's the owner of Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge, a very influential um, cheese shop and one of the earliest places to promote um, and to help domestic New England cheesemakers. And he sent me to Vermont um, and pointed me to David Major, Mm -hmm. to the Keeler Brothers, Mm -hmm. and to Linda Dimmick at Neighborly Farms. And those three, and I I visited all three of those places in 2004, and they really became central to the questions that I ended up eventually writing a grant proposal Mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in 2007 and 2008, I spent the summers in Wisconsin, California, and, and in Vermont again. Um, doing site visit interviews and so forth. I was going to ask, how does a study like this get funded? You said you wrote a grant proposal. To whom? And did it Mm -hmm. pay you for long enough? Um, I was funded from the Wenner-Grand Foundation for Anthropological Research, Mm -hmm. which is a private uh, research uh, institution um, to support anthropological research. Mm -hmm. And the research didn't pay salary, but it paid for travel expenses. Okay. Um, and it, it, this was a pretty cheap research project to do. Oh, okay. So you would do it on vacation from being a professor? Yeah, I did it in summer. Okay. I, I didn't have course reduction. Um, so okay. <laughs> okay. I did it in between teaching. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Now, what were the most fun parts of the research? Oh, boy. Oh, there were a lot. I mean, how can it not be fun to go <laughs> go to cheese festivals and cheese tastings and, and right, call it, it research, right? Right, it sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was really fortunate to be able to spend nearly two weeks on Major Farm, David Major's Farm in mm-hmm. Vermont. Mm-hmm. And I, I stayed in the barn apartment above the milking parlor. Um, and that was early on when you was, were... Learning on. a lot, I, I presume. That's right. And so I was able to help out in all facets of the cheese making from moving pasture fences and milking sheep to mm-hmm. making the cheese and working in the cave. Mm-hmm. Um, so that uh, early on, like you said, really gave me a sense of what it was I had to find out more about. Okay. Okay. And how was the writing? How long did it take to write? Did you write during or did you mm-hmm. write afterwards? I wrote bits and pieces during conference papers mm-hmm. and small papers, mm-hmm. published a couple articles. But the bulk of the book that I wrote five chapters of the book, I had a fellowship at the Radcliffe Institute um, for Advanced Study in Cambridge. And that gave me a year off of teaching. Oh, okay. Okay, so then that was solid. That was solid. That was your full-time job. I wrote every day for 12 months. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's a very dense book. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to say. (laughs) There's a lot to read. Cheese is complex. Yes, very, especially from your point of view. (laughs) So, okay, what was the hardest part of the project or the writing? The hardest part was organizing the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there were so many bits and pieces that I wanted to bring together. I was interested in the the economic issues. I was interested in the family dynamic issues. I was interested in the the scientific issues with um, the raw milk um, versus pasteurized milk debate and regulatory issues. Mm -hmm. I wanted to really have a sense of the liveliness of cheese. Uh, the complexity of working with this living substance. So I wanted all of that to be in the book, and yet I also wanted it to be able to point out to bigger issues in our society beyond um, cheese. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a lot to put in. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Um, Now, Heather is a professor at MIT, and I uh, asked her earlier, what courses would this book Mm -hmm. apply to? Who, Who would read it, and would they just read chapters sometimes, or would they read the whole book? Well, my uh, my press would hope that they read the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's been taught in anthropology of food classes, uh-huh. um, in ethnographic methods, research method classes, mm-hmm. um, and I taught it myself in a class that I teach called Art Craft Science at MIT, which mm-hmm. um, is a really fun class to teach with MIT students who love to make things, uh-huh. um, but have really not thought at all about. Um, the history of making things or, or mm-hmm. how that's how the values and, and the mean, symbolic meanings of what we do and, and how things are made um, is just a mar- much a part of what an object is as its mm-hmm. material substance. And are there other anthropology books that would be good uh, mm. friends with your book? Well, a book that I talk about um, in the introduction of my book is... Um, a book about chocolate tears, art- mm. artists and chocolate makers in France that Susan Terrio wrote a decade ago. And one of the things that is really Im- interesting about her, in her book is she describes the chocolatiers in France, the artisans who fabricate um, chocolate by hand and sell them in boutiques, as embodying a sort of ambivalence, um, that artisanship embodies a sort of ambivalence about middle-class status in in um, France. Um, these are people with high 
what we call cultural capital. The work that they do is valued by society. People appreciate the work that they do. Mm-hmm. And yet they're also seen as manual workers. Mm-hmm. So there's this doubleness, right? Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're valued and appreciated, and yet they're like kind of uncultured, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> the French kind of way. Uh-huh. So that doesn't really apply in the States. I don't think we have... We have different sort of issues that artisanship raises. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the tension that artisanship embodies in the United States that I saw is um, people appreciate the work that artisans do. They appreciate the products. But rather than seeing artisans as lacking in culture, they're kind of maybe frou-frou. You know what I mean? Oh. They're kind of elitist or sellouts or people presume that, that those who make a, a high-end product are kind of elite people. And the... As you know, um, mm-hmm. the cheese world is so diverse. The people making these wonderful products mm-hmm. with real skill and real taste, which you have mm-hmm. to have in mm-hmm. order to make cheese well, come from all kinds of backgrounds, right. farming backgrounds, mm-hmm. blue-collar backgrounds, art backgrounds, science backgrounds. So, mm-hmm. Now, is that because they're focusing more on the cheesemakers who have you know, retired from other careers and started up cheesemaking and look fairly wealthy that's even defi- when they start that's definitely part of it because the people who get written up in like the wall street journal or the new york mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. are going to be the former ceos and the former you know um finance people who are doing this as a second career mm-hmm. or a, a sustainable retirement project right it's not right. surprising and yet um there's so much more well there's it's you know, when you're explaining to the consumer why the American cheeses are so expensive, right. especially before when they were way more expensive than European, it's kind of evened out now. It was very hard to say, no, they're not rich. That's they're, right. they're really not gouging us. They're, they're not they're... making a lot of money off of this. They might be getting by. Right. We hope that they make enough to keep going right. and to right. have an actual life, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe even a little savings, maybe pay for health care. Right. Um, but they're and not getting And it's a long, much. hard day, it's especially if you hard. do both the dairy and the cheese making. That's one of the things that I really, that I really learned and really want to get across is that this is not something that you just do for fun. Right. This is something you have to be all in with. <laughs> right, right. And if you were frou-frou, you probably won't last. And you won't last. And oh. I've tracked some of those, too. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see them in the book that much. <laughs> I'll have to reread. Anyway, it's time for our break. Uh, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd, discussing the life of cheese by Heather Paxson. And we'll be back after a short break. Thank you. This one's called Sweet Talk by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more Cutting the Curd with Diane Stemple. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. When you come to learn at the Academy, we instill our love for cheese, our expertise, and our experience so that you can support artisanal producers, impeccably care for the fine cheeses you carry, and serve your customers with skill and enthusiasm. We integrate hands-on practice, formal instruction, and classroom discussion in all of our courses. The Academy's programs are offered at the Mons Fromagerie in the heart of France, where cheese undergoes affinage and cheeses are received, prepared, and shipped. Several Mons retail shops are nearby. The surrounding countryside is the home to producers whose excellent cheeses are cared for by the Mons team. 
the Mons Cheese Business has more than 50 years experience caring for and teaching about cheese in France, a country known as the source of some of the world's greatest cheeses, deepest cheese tradition, and the highest level of technological research and rigor in cheese making and ripening. The Academy has been recognized by the American Cheese Society as the first approved education center for those preparing for the certified cheese professional exam. Enroll now for essential foundations for cheese professionals or affinage, the art and science of maturing cheese. For more information, visit www.academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. Certified Cheese Professional is a registered trademark of the American Cheese Society. We're in the studio with Heather Paxson, who wrote The Life of Cheese, anthropologist from MIT, and this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd. Uh, one of the first things that struck me about the book, you're explaining in early chapters how both the creators and the customers of um, what I'll just call new food, meaning local food, slow food, small food, non-industrialized, unprocessed food, uh, are embracing and expressing a value system. Can you talk a little bit about that value system and what you think it encompasses? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's probably more than one value system. Okay. Okay. Um, I think I think one of the I, I frame I frame some of the my discussion at the very beginning in terms of um, a. A new ethos, I think, that people are exploring through food, which is to recognize, I refer to it as post-pastoral, and, and what that means is that we're, we're recognizing that nature doesn't stand apart from human activity. Mm-hmm. Nature is not pristine out there either as wilderness or as this source of unlimited bounty, mm-hmm. right? Sort of this pastoral romance and vision. Instead, we really have to actively steward or even more um, collaborate with um, these agent, you know, organic agencies and natural resources and so forth to, to keep going. And, and the, the way that our food has to be produced um, has to do so looking to the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what that means for, the, for people's values is um, not just thinking about best best value for money mm-hmm. but thinking about how our purchases or how what we what we consume what the what the ripple effects mm-hmm. of that act are mm-hmm. and and to to take pleasure and even even pleasure not just value in um, trying to ensure that these resources will be available in the future mm-hmm. so sort of uh, knocking on the door of sustainability and um, being sort of proud of what you eat or where you get it or how you're not mm-hmm. ruining the earth while you do so. All of that is part of it, but I, I absolutely do not advocate for any particular stance on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, one of the risks that the new food movement um, runs is expectations of purity, expectations of moral um, goodness that are unqualified. And mm-hmm. the reality is there's so many moving parts. You've got animal care and welfare. You've got land stewardship. You've got 
the well-being of agricultural laborers. Right. You have the the life that and and the creative passion that people went into this business to you know to pursue in the first place. Um, there are trade-offs to be made. Right. So I, I sort of think that um, if we if we relax our expectations and just realize that it being mindful and thoughtful about our food system and not taking it for granted, that's mm-hmm. really. I think what we can hope for. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about a lot of what you wrote was that you're being realistic. You're mm-hmm. saying don't be too dogmatic in any particular direction because it's not realistic and it can't accomplish everything with, let's say, if you only eat organic, that's right. going to mean something for sure that it doesn't necessarily mean. That's right. Okay. Okay. Any other um values particularly relating to cheesemakers well i think that um i i don't know how particular they are relating to cheesemakers um i I do think that a lot of what i describe for cheesemakers would be applicable to people who are doing um other kinds of food production or other kinds of craft production it doesn't Mm -hmm. even have to necessarily be food Mm -hmm. Um, I think cheese is fun (laughs) to Uh think about and Mm -hmm. and fun to make because it is such a challenging substance to work with. Mm -hmm. It is this living um, substance. Um, And I think the cheesemakers derive a lot of pleasure from um, the constant um, learning that they have to do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to keep up with it. And the hands-on you talk about a lot, too. Yes, yes. I mean, it is it is manual as well as mental labor. It's really mm-hmm. both. It really bridges the hand and the mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. Um, many of your points had kind of floated in my consciousness, and you're very good at elaborating them. One big one is the perceived differences and the unperceived similarities mm-hmm. between the new artisanal cheesemaker and I don't know, I don't remember what you call it, the old-fashioned three-generation... Artisan factory. Right, artisan factory, maybe in Wisconsin. I mm-hmm. think the example you use is from Wisconsin. And that's always had me scratching my head at ACS meetings because it seemed that there were many of the same goals, but they weren't perceived that way. Can you talk about that dichotomy? Yeah. I think the first place, maybe the thing to start with here is... Um, what does the word artisanal mean? Right, right. It, it refers to the process of manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a, a bloomy rind goat's milk cheese could be an artisanal cheese or it could be an industrial cheese, right? So mm-hmm. it's not about the cheese style. Um, it's about the method of, of production. However, we do perceive differences. We value differently Colby Mm-hmm. And a Bloomy Ryan goat's milk cheese, right, right? On, on the marketplace. They, Very much so. We're snobs. We, we they, well, they command <laughs> different prices. Mm-hmm. They are consumed by different segments of society, um, and so I think that a lot of the similarities in terms of what the cheesemakers working in eighty-year-old open vat, you know, not automated. Um, minimally modified milk you know in, in these artisan cheese factories what they are doing in the cheese factory what they are they're putting their hand in the vat to mm-hmm. to test the curd they're not moving on to the next step of the process without feeling mm-hmm. and smelling mm-hmm. and, and using their sensory analysis the similarities in what they're doing in the, the farmstead production versus the artisan factory production are masked by uh, what we read into from the 
the products that are being made. Mm -hmm. and, and the people themselves are different, and, mm -hmm. and their relationship to the work is maybe different. So is, it, is cheese making a, a blue-collar job mm -hmm. that you can get into after high school and you know make a good living? Um, but without going to college and so on and so forth? Or is it a no-collar sort of rural counterpart to a dot-com kind of creative capital job? Right. You, t you coined the phrase rustic no-collar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of back to the land. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the land, but also, and, and again, the what what the new um, the the newness to the artisan cheese renaissance in the eighties was bringing cheese back to the farm. Mm -hmm. Right, artisan cheese has been made continuously in this country. Right, but right. it wasn't made on farms for a hundred years, mm -hmm. almost a hundred years. Okay, okay, so that's a difference. That that is a difference. And the word factory, I think, puts people off, even if the factory is doing a great job and doing it artisanally exactly it's it got the word sounds, factory it in sounds it. like artisan factory sounds like an oxymoron right except right. in wisconsin right because they know oh, okay <laughs> okay they they know do and do you think uh the cheesemakers perceive themselves differently or are they beginning to see the similarities they're beginning to see the similarities and that's been really exciting and i think I'm seeing more of that even since I finished writing the book. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more hybrid cheeses and hybrid um, businesses. Right. So an example of, a, I would say, a hybrid cheese is Cabot Cloth Bound, which mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of listeners know about. So it's made um, with the milk of one farm's you know, a animals, but it's made using Cabot's industrial machinery. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, aged in the cellars at Jasper Hill. Um, so it's aged in an artisanal way. But the cheese is really, I'd say, it's, it's, it's playing with that boundary yes. between artisanal and industrial in a good way, mm -hmm. right? Um, I call it in the book a cheese of moderate speed. It's not slow food and it's not sort of industrial fast food, right? And it has a great reputation as, a, as a person who works for Jasper Hill can attest. <laughs> it really has um, – people do say Cabot. Why is the word Cabot on there? And of course, Cabot makes great supermarket mm -hmm. cheese. I have it in mm -hmm. my super, my fridge all the time. Right. Um, but And it's a – Farmer. But it is a different world. It's those a different are world. Those are two different worlds. And they operate at different scales. Right. Yeah, right. it is. But they're, they're in Wisconsin, then there's more, there's some of these third generation, fourth generation artisan factories that are starting to make, on top of the industrial cheeses that they make, mm -hmm. artisan cheeses. Mm -hmm. So Dunbarton Blue at uh -huh. Roelli Cheese is a great example of that fourth generation cheesemaker going back to what his great-grandfather probably And kind of branching off into a more artisanal product. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing more and more of that, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, definitely. And, and people are beginning, I think, to collaborate at ACS yeah. and to make friends across the divide. ACS has been good for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, another question. Um, these are just smaller things. Uh, another fascinating take. You make progress historically towards industrializing cheesemaking sound less evil. <laughs> <laughs> and for example, I did not know Colby was faster cheddar. Uh -huh. that, that it's a similar <laughs> recipe taking out the cheddar. Cheddaring, yes. And 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 that a lot of the factories were just pooling resources. That's right. Um and and one thing you put about removing the chore of cheese making from the farmer's wife. Mm -hmm. That must have been a very lengthy Sure. And I'm, I'm drawing a lot of this from the historian Sally McMurray, who's uh -huh. written a great history of 19th century cheesemaking mm -hmm. in the States. But 
she has found letters from from farm wives, sort of or farm women, saying complaining about it's it, it's the hottest. You know, there's no air conditioning, of course, right? Right, <laughs> and right. It's very hot work. You do it all summer. You can't not do it, mm-hmm. right? You have the milk. It has to be. You have to do something with it. You don't have a lot of refrigeration. Mm-hmm. Um, it was onerous, and mm-hmm. not every farm woman was a good cheesemaker, mm-hmm. right? Some of them had a knack for mm-hmm. it, and some of them didn't, and they had to make cheese anyway. Right. Um, so when the factory system um, began, which is really just, a, as you say, a consolidation of, of milk and the farmers getting together and paying a, a cheesemaker to process the cheese for them, and then they would all share collectively in the, mm-hmm. in the proce- um, profits based on volume, they were able to find people who were good at making cheese. Right, and, and who liked it better. And who liked it better. And so the overall quality of cheese, not just the safety, but the quality, mm-hmm. probably improved with mm-hmm. that innovation. And the consistency, which Absolutely. is, you know, we consider consistency a double-edged sword. But, you know, at first it probably was a big boom. Absolutely. That you could eat cheese all winter because it was consistently good. And it could be traded further distances, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um. Near the end of the book, you define the word bellwether <laughs> and talk about it. Could you define it for our listeners and tell me a little bit what, how, what you meant in the book about bellwether? Well, the bellwether is a, a U with a, with a bell attached to it right. to lead the other to flux. So a bellwether is sort of um, um, a precursor of what's to come. Uh huh. Right. So the bellwether would be the first sheep that would say, "Oh, the flock is coming down." Right. right. So the bell, bellwether is like a harbinger of things to come. Mm-hmm. So is you know what what you know is this artisanal cheese thing a, a bellwether? Are we going to get more and more artisanally made food? Mm-hmm. Right. Is our is our industrial food system going to give way to a larger and larger segment of? True industrial production mm-hmm. with um, more local markets, um, smaller batches, and so forth. Like, how big an impact will this have how big of on an impact our will it have? actual food industry? Is this just a a, a fad, mm-hmm. a, a, a you know, a millennial blip, mm-hmm. or is this a reinvention of our food system that's going to have en- enduring effects? Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. Anthropologists right. are allergic to prediction. Uh-huh. Um, oh, but- you don't make them? <laughs> you just state the present? We are empiricists. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think the question is, is one that's out there. Yeah, yeah. And I think, well, this radio station in particular is concerned with that kind of question about all different areas of mm. food production and uh that's part of what we focus on here so the book i feel like it should be required reading for all the hosts on the show (laughs) on the radio station anyway i want to thank heather paxson so much for coming to town and discussing this book in person it's so it's so interesting and deep and has so many different fascinating things in it thank you very much thank you so much diane it's been a real pleasure thank you and this is diane stemple on cutting the curd you can get this on podcast on itunes or stitcher and it's heritage radio network.org thank you Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.